0: Why, hello there, priests. You have found the hardest book review podcast there is, where we digest life-changing books. We shit out greatness, and we change our lives one book at a time. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Let's go. And here we go. Welcome back. This is Troy Hollings with the Curiously Disagreeable podcast. This is episode three of the series known as the beginning of infinity. Definitely going to have to go listen to episode one and two. David started out by explaining that he's a genius. And then also by talking about how explanatory knowledge is the key to what makes humans different, but makes us universal and how knowledge can be found anywhere in the universe and where it is found it done affects the world he's been walking us through universality the concept of writing in pictograms and how like you know i you have a little picture and it means man you know think of think of the the men's room and the women's room okay but how do you how do you do the, the 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 hybrids you know them we're just gonna move on past that but uh And so, but like the alphabet, you know, you can, you can contain any concept you ever want by writing it into words. And so it's been crazy. He talked about numbers and how just in general, um, you know, the system of numbers is actually the thing doing the knowledge creation and is just using human beings to get itself replicated. It's been fucking insane. And now we're going to move to movable type printing. Holy shit. A jump to universality that played an important role in the early history of the Enlightenment was the invention of movable type printing. Movable type consisted of individual pieces of metal, each embossed with one letter of the alphabet. But given a supply of movable type with several instances of each letter, one does no further metalwork. One merely arranges the types into words and sentences. One does not have to know In order to manufacture type what the documents that it will eventually print are going to say it is universal so i was listening to this uh first time i heard this audiobook again i had covid i just finished the self machine and i just was like let's suffer more and i'm just sitting on my patio and this is the part where i laid on the ground and just fucking cried like a bitch think about that he's saying before you to have a scribe and that scribe actually had to have like knowledge of the language you're like hey troy can you go translate that into japanese no i can't i don't know how but he's saying if you have movable type printing all of a sudden that knowledge now is just contained in the fucking system and so i don't even need to know what the potential future things that i'm going to print if i've got the universal letters I can print anything. I could print Harry Potter, I could print 50 shades of gray, I could I could print the encyclopedia. Here, we see a transition that is typical of the jump to universality. Before the jump, one had to make specialized objects for each document to be printed. After the jump, one customizes or specializes or programs a universal object, in this case, a printing press with movable type. But even now, dude, think about think about before the internet before computers, you know, before these words you're hearing in your damn earballs. Like I could have universal knowledge, but it was, it was, uh, of a Swiss, a Swiss village. It was, um, you know, I like carry on a book and you can carry a physical book in your backpack, but you know what I can do? I can carry if I have enough money or, uh, you know, like pirate a bunch of books. Like I can legit carry the library of Alexandria in my pocket, in my phone, the most momentous such technology is that of computers, on which an increasing proportion of all technology now depends, and which also has deep theoretical and philosophical significance. Now, there was some bitch in 1820, Babbage, that he made, uh, basically made a computer, but he was too stupid to figure it out, and he was like, "Hey, I found the wheel. Okay, I'm gonna go do math." That's what he did, metaphorically. Unfortunately. Despite pouring a fortune of his own money and that of the British British government into the project, Babbage was such a poor organizer that he never succeeded in building a difference engine. But his design was sound. Uh, Apparently in 1991, some engineers had a bunch of time on their hands and they rebuilt the difference engine and it truly turned into a classical computer. But what David points out is if only that in 18 whatever Babbage had looked around for other implementations he might have realized that the perfect one was already waiting for him electrical relays so switches controlled by electrical currents so I just say all that because like that's the example of how sometimes universality is figured out So, like let's say crypto but then it takes forever to realize the true application or the thing that just by luck and by time, you know, that that difference engine that he created, it actually can build the future world that everything rests on. I wonder how many things out there there are like that right now. But because Babbage was over there just drinking and doing meth, he didn't get that figured out until 1970 when he was dead and somebody else figured it out. Because then several companies independently produced a microprocessor, a universal classical computer on a single silicon chip. From then on, designers of any information processing device could start with a microprocessor and then customize it, program it to perform the specific tasks needed for that device. God damn it. That's crazy. And then he talks about how um, you know part of this requirement of a universal system is there has to be error error correction you know he says that tallying is universal only if it's digital because imagine that some ancient goat herd uh, tried to tally the length of the flock but instead of a number they they reeled out some cord and a string um, but it, you know in practice like that'd be really really hard to do and you couldn't get it figured out so whatever What is needed is a system that takes for granted that errors will occur, but corrects them once they do. A case of problems are inevitable, but they are soluble at the lowest level of information processing emergence. So if we think about Bitcoin, if we think about crypto, you know, built into the system is if if the hive mind, if everybody realizes that, you know what, collectively, we all made a mistake. You can go back and you can start at the previous block. And in the history that had just happened that was the mistake, fuck that. Start the previous block, go. And so what David would say is that's interesting, but that is that universality also has error correction built into it. You know, if you think about, if you think about the system of writing, you know, you can strike through. Like, yeah, we've got erasers now, but like in the system of writing, you can you can cross out something. And everybody knows, hey, if something's crossed out, keep going. So you could write a perfect book with no errors. Now, maybe it's like, doesn't look as good, but if it's crossed out, hey, that's universal. And so those are all examples of diverse jumps to universality. And the striking connection between them all is that they happened on Earth. In fact, all known jumps to universality happened under the auspices of human beings, except for one, which I've not mentioned yet and from which all the others historically emerged it happened during the early evolution of life so we talked about this on the selfish gene it blew our minds but long ago there was the soup bunch of disconnected amino acids proteins and shit but then just by luck and magnetism different replicators began to join forces They formed the tiniest, smallest microorganisms, but they started replicating themselves. They started replicating themselves. But at that point, life was at a stage roughly analogous to that of non-universal printing or Roman numerals. It was no longer a case of each replicator for itself. So early on in the soup, it was just like chaos and just liars, bitches and thieves. But there was no universal system being customized or programmed to produce specific substances. then came the rna molecules which who fucking cares but as a result the replication process became ever less like straightforward catalysts and ever more like programming in a language or genetic code that used bases as an alphabet so so he's saying is that like it started as this fucking soup and all these replicators and whatever and, and like There was selection happening, and then you had some replicators dying, some getting better, and then like super replicator and then mega transformer replicator. But then, something weird happened. The familiarity of what happened next can obscure how remarkable and mysterious it is. Initially, the the genetic code and the mechanism that interpreted it were both evolving along with everything else in the organisms. So you had these tiny little bacteria things and then you had, you know, the genetic code and both the organism and the genetic code was improving. But there came a moment when the code stopped evolving, just like Roman numerals. Think about that. Like you're always adding a new pictogram, you know, okay, well, it's a double dick dance, you know, add another, add another. But then there's a moment where it stops at that moment the system was coding for nothing more complex than primitive single-celled creatures. Zero through nine, and some rules. Yet virtually all subsequent organisms on Earth to this day have not only been based on DNA replicators, but have used exactly the same alphabet of bases grouped into three base words with only small variations in the meaning of the words. Jesus Christ! DNA molecules reach a certain level of universality, The foundation was set, then billions of years of unchained goddamn replication happened. Ow, my balls. That means that, considered as a language for specifying organisms, the genetic code has displayed phenomenal reach. So what that's saying is that there's, like, the genetic code long, 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 long ago was evolving. It was like Roman numerals, add another picture, add a dick, and then... It got to a point where numbers came out. Where the code itself was universal. And then organisms started evolving. The code kept the same. Numbers, letters stayed the same. But all of our ideas, all of our knowledge started to fucking evolve. What happened next followed the same sad pattern that I've described in other stories of universality. For well over a billion years, billion After the system had reached universality and stopped evolving, it was still only being used to make bacteria. That means that the reach that we can now see that the system had was to remain unused for longer than the system itself had taken to evolve from non-living precursors. If intelligent aliens had visited they would have seen no evidence that the genetic code could specify anything significantly different than the organisms that it had specified when it first appeared. So what's saying is that, like, for a billion years, the genetic code, which is now what all fucking life everywhere rests on, for a billion years, yeah, <laughs> nothing. Just making bacteria. And so, you know, forgive me if crypto, after 10 years, is not it's not popping to the level that naval believes it and that that even tells us that like they're 1820 universality is found with computers it wasn't until 1970 that it really realized its full potential the mysterious universality of dna as a constructor may have been the first universality to exist here we go but of all the different forms of universality the most significant physically is the characteristic universality of people Namely, that we are universal explainers, which makes us universal constructors as well. So he's saying, we are even more important than fucking genes. The effects of that universality are, as I have explained, explicable only by means of the full gamut of fundamental explanations. It is also the only kind of universality capable of transcending its parochial origins universal computers cannot really be universal unless there are people present to provide energy and maintenance indefinitely and the same is true of all other technologies even life on earth will eventually be extinguished unless people decide otherwise only people can rely on themselves into the unbounded future Hey fucker, I'm a. I am i do not have any more vomit. Can you? Can you? Can you chill? Oh, thank God. Chapter seven: Artificial Creativity. Long, exhaustive analysis of AI and how it is still difficult to make AI, but one day we will. And his position is that AI seems fucking crazy, but who knows the end. Great. Thanks. Chapter eight. A window on infinity. Mathematicians realized centuries ago that it is possible to work consistently and usefully with infinity. Infinite sets, infinitely large quantities, and also infinitesimally small quantities all make sense. The beginning of infinity, the possibilities of the unlimited growth of knowledge in the future depend on a number of other infinities. So hang with me, dog, but he's basically gonna say, okay if what he just proved was true which like we have infinite reach not like you know some reach but like infinite reach into fucking forever we being people by having explanatory knowledge if we have that type of reach well then we're gonna goddamn obey the laws of infinity and the laws of infinity they done be crazy as hell so he needs to teach us about the infinite laws of infinity here we all are the beginning of infinity, the possibility of the unlimited growth of knowledge in the future depends on another other. And blah, 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 I already said that. One of them is the universality of the laws of nature, which allows finite local symbols to apply to the whole of time and space and to all phenomenon and all possible phenomenon. So if, if truly knowledge can go forever, there has to be infinite, true, applying everywhere, laws of nature you know, there can't be a place where I can live underwater and I can, I can obey the intelligence of the crabs. I have to always follow universal laws. Another is the existence of physical objects that are universal explainers, people, which it turns out are necessarily universal constructors as well and must contain classical computers. So what that is saying is that like the reach of explanatory knowledge being infinite is true. But if there's no one to understand it, and to profit from it, and to use it to become rich, jacked and gods among men, it kind of doesn't matter. It's just It's just the way, but no one has seen it. But the whole of the above discussion assumes the universality of reason. The reach of science has inherent limitations. So does mathematics. So does every branch of philosophy. But if you believe there are bounds on the domain in which reason is the proper arbiter idea arbiter of ideas than you believe in unreason or the supernatural the best explanation of anything eventually involves universality and therefore infinity the reach of explanations cannot be limited so all that shit to say like hey if you buy his shit that that humans are universal constructors and explainers and the world obeys by these these laws of infinity and anywhere there's knowledge shit be changing well those laws they have to be universal but then also reason has to be fucking involved you're like there can't be a place in the universe where reason doesn't apply there can't be a place in the universe where if me and my bro teleported it's now cool if i just stab him in the heart that doesn't apply but a mathematician named david devised a thought experiment to illustrate some of the intuitions that one has to drop when reasoning about infinity so again if we're trying to understand this shit the world and humans and people and creation of knowledge obeys laws of infinity well what are them their laws well if you haven't vomited yet get ready This is the intellectual version of when you're seven drinks deep at a bar, undecided on going home or escalating, and that guy you hate from work shows up, and you decide it is your moral obligation to outdrink him. You knowingly volunteer hours of tomorrow for fun tonight, and you start pounding shots. That's where we are. Infinity Hotel. So that uh, mathematician named David, who's not our author, David, um, he imagined a hotel with infinitely many rooms. Infinity Hotel. The rooms are numbered with the natural numbers starting with one and ending with what? Uh, The last room number is not infinity. First of all, there is no last room. It's like, hey, do you have openings in your hotel? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we'll fit you in. Well, how many rooms do you have? Uh, uh, uh. I don't know. The idea that any numbered set of rooms has a highest numbered member is the first intuition from everyday life that we have to drop. Okay, so with infinity, there ain't no goddamn end. (sighs) Second, in any finite hotel whose rooms were numbered from one, there would be a room whose number equaled the total number of rooms. So if it goes one to 100 you'd have a room 100 that would be the total number of rooms and the and other rooms whose numbers were close to that 99 98 if there were 10 rooms one of them would be 10 one of them would be nine you got it but in an infinity hotel where the number of rooms is infinity all the rooms have numbers infinitely far below infinity so yeah there's no end but the crazy thing is since there's no end Any number that you you sniff out, 100,846, that is infinitely below infinity. It's not like 99 right below 100. Even if you add a million zeros to that, it's still infinitely below infinity because goddamn infinity, it, it done blows minds. Now, imagine that infinity hotel is fully occupied. Each room contains one guest and cannot contain more. With finite hotels fully occupied, so with, with normal hotels, fully occupied, that's the same thing as no room for more guests. So if you have 100 rooms and it's fully occupied, well, there's no room for people. You got one through 100, you know, it's full. But Infinity Hotel always has room for more. So even if you're fully occupied, there's always room for more. One of the conditions of staying is that guests have to change rooms if asked by management. Okay. So there's always room for more. That's one component of this shit. Another, just of this damn thought experiment, is if management asks, guests have to change rooms. Got it. So if a new guest arrived, the management would just announce over the, the system will all guests please move immediately to the room numbered one more than their current room? Got it. Okay. So, you know, if you're in. If you're in a normal hotel and you're in, you're in room 13, you move to room 14. If you're in room 14, you move to 15. If you're at 99, you move to 100. If you're at 100, <laughs> you're dead. But in infinity hotel, two moves to three, 99 moves to 100, 100 moves to 101. But everybody, move, ah, but like math breaks down because there's no top room. Like everybody just moves up one and that can go on forever. Okay, okay, I see infinity is insane um intuitions about infinity are often illogical okay so infinity hotel continuing this thought experiment it's also cheap and nice how well every day when the management receive all the room rents, so the rents for every room is a dollar per day they spend the income as follows with the dollars they receive from rooms one to 100 they buy complimentary champagne strawberries housekeeping services and slate uh um, and um video games for just for room one with the dollar they received from rooms 1001 to 2001 they do the same for room two so what he's saying is thought experiment okay 1000 to 2000 all that money so a thousand bucks a day they take that and they 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 give that thousand bucks to room one so room one you know spent about spent a a dollar and then they just got 999 dollars given to them and so they're you know they're getting nintendos they're getting champagne shit is awesome in this way each room receives several hundred dollars worth of goods and services every day and the management make a profit as well all from their income of 1 dollar per room so think about that because if you're running that damn thought experiment so 1000 to 2000 you, $1 one. $2, $1 two. you get a dollar for one 2000 to 3000 you get a dollar for two 3000 to 4000 you get a you get a bunch of money for for three but but if you think about infinity you know that can run infinitely many times so even one even though one thousand to two thousand is a big jump on the spectrum of infinity it doesn't matter and so since there's no end that trickles all the way down to everybody in every single room has a nintendos and the hotel makes a bunch of money let's continue this shit. word gets around and one day an infinitely long train Pulls up at the local station, containing infinitely many people wanting to stay at the hotel. Making infinitely many announcements would take too long. In any ways, that doesn't—they—they they, they don't want to do that shit. The management merely announce: "Will all guests please move immediately to the room whose number is double that of their current room?" Obviously, they all can do that, and afterwards, the only occupied rooms are the even-numbered ones. So. By the fact of fucking math, that happens. So the first new arrival goes to room one, the second goes to room three, and so on. And it's fine. He gives another example that still works. Hey, fucking great. However, it is mathematically possible to overwhelm the capacity of Infinity Hotel. So there, so I like, guess it's about too fucking crazy. Who cares? But, um, Infinity Hotel has a unique, self-sufficient waste disposal system. Every day, the management first rearrange the guests in a way that ensures that all rooms are occupied, okay? All rooms are occupied, got it. Then, they make the following announcement. Within the next minute, will all guests please bag their trash, so trash from their room, and give it to the guest in the next highest numbered room. So if you're in room, room two, you take your trash and you give it to the person in room three thanks bitch then you get the trash from person you know from room number one should you receive a bag during that minute then pass it on within the next 30 seconds should you receive a bag during that next 30 seconds pass it on within the next 15 seconds getting smaller and smaller and smaller Uh, so to comply with that the guests have to work fast but you know none of them have to work infinitely fast or handle infinitely many bags each of them performs a finite number of actions so you know that that i think makes some sense as per the hotel rules but after two minutes all these trash moving actions have ceased but now here's the crazy part after two minutes no guests have any trash so what started with you know trash goes from room one to room 2, from room 2 to th- room 3, from room 100,045 to room 100,046, and then if you receive trash, you need to pass it on, but quicker, and then you need to pass it on, but quicker, you need to pass it on, but quicker, getting getting to where it's like, you have one second to pass it on, you have half a second, you have a quarter second, you have a fifth of a second, you have, you know, quicker, 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 and then two minutes is done, because that's finite, it will be done, and when everybody looks up, there's no fucking trash, all the trash in the hotel has disappeared from the universe. It is nowhere. No one has put it nowhere. Every guest has merely moved some of it into another room. The nowhere where all the trash is gone is called in physics a singularity. Singularities may well happen in reality, maybe in black holes, maybe elsewhere. But infinity is not magic. You know, it has logical rules. That is the whole that is that, that so that's the whole point of the infinity hotel thought experiment like Hey, universal expansion of knowledge obeys laws of infinity. So like, what are the laws of infinity? This thought experiment is a very clever way of illustrating them. Okay, so let's just blow everybody's mind and throw up. One day in Infinity Hotel, a guest's puppy happens to climb into a trash bag. The owner does not notice and passes the puppy into the trash, which then gets taken to the next room and the next room and the next room and the next room. Within two minutes, the puppy is nowhere. Because the same thing is, there's the trash, nobody has any trash, the puppy's gone. The distraught owner phones the front desk. The receptionist announces over the public address system We apologize for the inconvenience, but an item of value has been inadvertently thrown away. Will all guests please undo all the trash moving actions that they have just performed in reverse order, starting as soon as you receive a bag of trash from the next highest numbered room? So if, if, if it was zero to 100 rooms, it'd be very easy. You know, okay, well, I'm in room one. I'm going to give trash to room two. If I'm in room two, I'm going to give trash to room three. If I'm in room three, give trash to room four. Then, you know, if I got a bag of trash, then I, you know, give it to the next room the next room. To, to where room 100 has 100 bags of trash and then two minutes is done. We. But since it's infinity, well, all the trash is gone. And so... Now, the puppy is fucking gone. And so the hotel was like, hey, can you undo that? Come on, okay, if, if, if you're room 100, just undo it. Give all the trash back, but to no avail. None of the guests return any bags because their fellow guests in the higher number rooms are not returning any either. It was no exaggeration to say that the bags are nowhere. They have not been stuffed into a mythical room number infinity. They no longer exist, they, lo- they no longer exist, nor does the puppy. Every individual action that the guest performs was both performed, was both harmless to the puppy and perfectly reversible. Yet taken together, those actions annihilated the puppy and cannot be reversed. I feel like Dale from Step Brothers throwing up at the kitchen table. Wah! Like You put the puppy in the singularity and now it's gone forever. Every room is at the beginning of infinity. That is one of the attributes of the unbounded growth of knowledge too we are only just always scratching the surface so there's no such thing as a typical room at, a, at infinity hotel every room number is untypically close to the beginning the intuitive idea that there must be an average is also false for infinite sets after the shocking loss of the puppy The management of Infinity Hotel wanted to give out some books, and so he does a thought experiment with his books, and shit's crazy too. Mathematically, this is nothing momentous. The example merely demonstrates again that the attributes, probable or improbable, rare or common, typical or untypical, have literally no meaning in regard to comparing infinite sets of natural numbers. And that feels a little bit to me. Like Nassim Taleb talking about extremistan and mediocristan. How, you know, we think this math works. We think we're in mediocristan. But in reality, dude, we're in extremistan. The world is fucking in extremistan. And it sounds like David would agree. You know, if, if knowledge is truly infinite, none of that average bullshit works. It fucking ain't nobody can predict shit. The growth of knowledge behaves like Infinity Hotel. Oh, fuck me. The most important of all limitations on knowledge creation is that we cannot prophesy. So that's what I was just talking about. Ain't nobody can predict shit. We cannot predict the content of ideas yet to be created or their effects. This limitation is not only consistent with the unlimited growth of knowledge, it is entailed by it, as I shall explain in the next chapter, The pro- that problems are soluble does not mean that we already know their solutions or can generate them to order. That would be akin to creationism. So he's saying this isn't a contradiction with what he he yelled about before, which is like, hey bitch, we can figure out anything and we can expand expand across the universe, but we don't know what those problems are until we hit them. And then it's only through creativity and conjecture and adding onto the body of knowledge that we ultimately can fix them. So whether problems are soluble does not depend on whether any given question can be answered or answered by a particular thinker on a particular day. But if progress ever depended on violating laws of physics, then problems are soluble would be false. So he's saying you can't predict that, you know, I'm going to figure out this problem in the next day. But you can predict that over generational, evolutionary, universal time, if it's possible by the laws of physics. Is fucking possible, and it continues. Chapter nine: optimism. So there's uh, some bitch named Reeves, uh, Reese, 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 and he wrote a book uh, basically saying like, "Hey, the world is gonna blow up because of the possibility of chemical or biological weapons," which like that's a very logical thing if you take that logical track of like holding everything else constant. Nuclear weapons have the possibility to destroy the world over a thousand years. Nuclear weapons will destroy the world because that one in a thousand or one in 10,000 probability, that will happen. But that bitch is wrong because he he makes the analogy of playing Russian roulette. Well, that's a great kind of cool analogy, but the probability of winning at Russian roulette is unaffected by anything that the player may think or do. So there's no amount of thinking like, I'm going to think my way to the best outcome. Uh, playing Russian Roulette, that's purely probability. It's just a game of chance. In contrast, the future of civilization depends entirely on what we think and do. Both the future of civilization and the outcome of Russian Roulette are unpredictable, but in different senses and for entirely unrelated reason, reasons. Russian Roulette is random. We know the possible outcomes, even though we can't predict them. The future of civilization is unknowable because the knowledge of that is going to affect it has yet to be created. Hence, the possible outcomes are not yet known, let alone their probabilities. Let's say a nuclear bomb got launched and then we just figure out the technology that like cures radiation sickness. And we're like, no, it's kind of like an annoying cold that happens over 30 years. Who cares? We just fix it. That, you, you know, you can't predict that. Or maybe there's uh, things that sniff out the bombs and eat them in the sky. I don't know. And the growth of knowledge can't change that. So that's the thing that's, it's like, We're never going to be able to predict the future because we don't know what those problems are going to be which are going to cause us to have to go solve them. And actually, the growth of knowledge contributes strongly to it. And and, and it being like, bitch, ain't nobody can predict shit. The ability of scientific theories to predict the future depends on the reach of their explanations. But no explanation has enough reach to predict the content of its own successors or their effects or those of other ideas that have yet to be thought of. So like, um, if we look at, I don't know, in like 1800, there are people doing, doing a about cities and they, they looked at all the horses and they're like, oh, it's going to be horrible. You know, in, in 30 years, horses are going to be overtaking the city and there's going to be shit and up to your, everybody's knees. And then everybody will get diseases and die. It's like, okay, okay. Well, if you're holding the fact that we'll never create any more knowledge than horses constant, you're right. But you know what we created? Goddamn cars, okay? And so that's the point. But we can't predict what that solution is going to be. We can't say, oh, it's going to be cars. We don't know that because we can't predict the probability of an outcome or phenomenon whose course is going to be significantly affected by the creation of new knowledge. This is a fundamental limitation on the reach of scientific prediction. And when planning for the future... It is vital to come to terms with it. And this is this one fucking fact is what Taleb lays his whole investment thesis on. And that's why he says you have to have a barbell strategy in your life. Because you can't predict what'll happen, but having a shitload of cash, weapons, land, stored food, water, solar panels, livestock, and a bunch of moonshot opportunities on the other side that helps you uh, in all the parallel universes where a bunch of new knowledge is created and wildly new shit happens. But also, like, a bunch of bad shit happens. You know, if a bunch of bad shit happens, do you want to have an AR-15 and a bunch of food or not? That's the question. I shall use the term prediction for conclusions about future events that follow from good explanations. So, like, gravity is true. If I raise my arms, gravity will work on them. That is a prediction that follows from good explanations and prophecy for anything that purports to know what is yet unknowable. Trying to know the unknowable leads inexorably to error and self-deception. Among other things, it creates a bias towards pessimism. When the determinants of future events are unknowable, how should one prepare for them? How can one? Given that some of those determinants are beyond the reach of scientific prediction, what is the right philosophy of the unknown future? What is the rational approach to the unknowable, to the inconceivable, That is the subject of this chapter, and I will say, obviously, that is to grow yourself into a kuse mono and have guns, chicken, and land, son. Because one thing we do know is that protecting ourselves from any disaster requires knowledge, and that knowledge has to be created. Moreover, there's only one way of making progress, conjecture and criticism. And in the market, conjecture is my guess, my startup. Criticism is when I fucking get it wrong. And then i fail but a tiny little part of it's good and then that turns into a company and the only moral values that permit sustained progress are the objective values that the enlightenment has begun to discover no doubt the extraterrestrials the aliens morality is different than ours but that will not be because it resembles that of conquistadors so that was stephen hawking was like oh man aliens man they're gonna eat us they're gonna use us for mate nor Would it be in serious danger of culture shock from contact with an advanced civilization, because it will know how to educate its own children, and in particular, to teach us how to use its computers and whatever? And so, like the the, goddamn, like the summary basically is just saying like this universal progress. He even weaves in philosophy. He even weaves in capitalism, and he basically says like, hey, we cannot lose that spark that, that happened in the Enlightenment. Let's fucking do it. And, and any, like, by definition, any universal explainer, any universal constructor, which to make it this far, the aliens would have to be that, they would have found these true good explanations and they, they wouldn't be conquistadors and want to eat us for meat, apparently. Before our ancestors learned how to make fire, people must have died of exposure literally on tops of the means of making the fires that would have saved their lives. because they, Because they did not know how. In a parochial sense, the weather killed them. But the deeper explanation is a lack of knowledge. We do not know the probability of a spontaneously occurring incurable plague, but we may guess that it is unacceptably high. Since pandemics such as the Black Death in the fourteenth century have also has have already shown us the sort of sort of thing that can happen on a time scale of centuries. Should any of those catastrophes come, we now have at least a chance of creating the knowledge required to survive in time we have such a chance because we are able to solve problems problems are inevitable we shall always be faced with the problem of how to plan for an unknowable future we shall never be able to afford to sit back and hope for the best even if our civilization moves out into space we need to be prepared for a giant gamma ray burst that would kill us all Such an event is thousands of times rarer than an asteroid collision, but when it does finally happen, we shall have no defense against it without a great deal more scientific knowledge and an enormous increase in wealth. Thus, the principle of optimism is that all evils are caused by insufficient knowledge. Oh fuck, I'm getting that tingle, boy. Optimism is, in the first instance, a way of explaining failure, not prophesying success. Whatever. If we do not for the moment know how to limit, how to eliminate a particular evil, or we know in theory but do not have enough time and resources, AKA wealth, then even so, it is universally true that either the laws of physics forbid eliminating it in the given time with available resources, or there is a way to eliminate it in the time with those resources. So, so what he's saying is that even if we don't know how to do something, either It's fucking physically possible and we just need to figure out the knowledge or it's like moving faster than the speed of light and it's just impossible. The same must hold for death. That is to say, the deaths of human beings from disease or old age. I'm ready to become immortal, David. The problem of aging is the same general type as that of disease. Although it is a complex problem by present day standards, the complexity is finite and continuous and confined to a relatively narrow arena whose basic principles are already fairly well understood. Meanwhile, knowledge in the relevant fields is increasing exponentially. Now that is crazy because I'm bought in that knowledge is increasing on an exponential pace infinitely. And if that's the truth, then, you know, death, that's static. Infinite knowledge creation, we're going to become immortal. We just have to make it. You just have to find the knowledge. He talks about that, that old uh, Chinese proverb where there's uh, some guy who's going to be put to death, and he tells the king, hey, within a year, I'll teach your favorite horse to talk. And uh, the king's like, done. Here's a year. But a lot can happen in a year. The horse might die. The king might die. Or the horse might talk. He knows that, so he being the prisoner, if progress is to be made, some of the opportunities and some of the discoveries will be inconceivable in advance progress cannot take place at all unless someone is open to it and prepares for those inconceivable possibilities and that's what ben horowitz in that uh hard thing about hard things was talking about just like sometimes even buying time is the key to success and so very occasionally there have been places and moments when there was briefly an end to pessimism and as far as david knows no historian has ever investigated the history of optimism, but his guess is that whenever it has emerged in a civil in a civilization, there has been a mini enlightenment, a tradition of criticism resultin- resulting in an efflorescence of many of the patterns of human progress with what we are familiar, such as art, literature, technology, money. It may be that the enlightenment has tried to happen countless times perhaps even all the way back to prehistory. Even so, those many enlightenments put our recent lucky escapes in stark perspective. It may be that there was progress every time, a brief end to stagnation, a brief glimpse of infinity, always ending in tragedy, always snuffed out, usually without trace, except this one. But we should feel more than sympathy for those people. We should take it personally, For if any of those early experiments, if any of those earlier experiments in optimism had succeeded, our species would be exploring the stars by now, and you and I would be immortal. Holy shit. And with that, we close this episode of the Curiously Disagreeable podcast. We still have his treatise on memes, and we're winding it down. He's going to tie all this shit back up into a bow and then and put it on a present. You're going to open it. It's like when you were a child and you got a game system for the first time. Or like when you first found, you got your first computer. You know what I'm saying? But if you want that, if you want more, if you want everything, you're going to have to tune into the next episode of the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that's my pretties is another episode down of the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. Check us out. A curiously Disagreeable.com, the Troy Hollings on Instagram, or wherever the fuck you get your podcasts. The end.